Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Well, as family meetings often do, my family meeting episode last week caused a few feelings. If you didn't listen to that episode, I do think you should listen to it before this one, but I also think this episode probably operates as a standalone piece. Welfare is at the forefront of all that I do. Preparing a dog adequately for the environment in which we expect them to function is a kindness and I also think it's a non-negotiable. That means that if we have not adequately prepared a dog to operate in the agility trial environment, then we have done them a disservice. It's really important to me that we take the best care of our dogs that we can. It's why I'm always talking about off-leash exercise, which is another thing that people get, frankly, pissed off at me about. But I won't stop talking about it because I know that it's what's best. And that's why here I am recording another podcast about aggression at agility trials. I think all of the handlers and all of the dogs deserve support. That includes any handler and any dog who's been involved in an altercation or a problem at a trial. But what support looks like to me is telling a person the truth and getting them the right kind of help, not sugarcoating and making promises that can't be kept. My first agility dog was a Border Collie named Kelso. And I got Kelso when I was 14 years old, so I was a kid. The first dog that Kelso attacked was another puppy in puppy kindergarten. He was 12 weeks old. I went on to put high-level titles on Kelso in both agility and obedience. And there were two instances in which Kelso was involved. Largely, Kelso did not cause any problems. There's one incident that I'll probably never forget in which he did grab a golden retriever by the face at an agility trial. The dog approached him from behind in the queue as I was trying to look at the ring gate. My attention was off of him for a split second while I looked at the gate sheets. Before that time and since that time, for his entire career, I didn't take my eye off of him. And because he was quite well-trained, he wasn't involved in anything else. Kelso was not barred from competition that day. He wasn't even written up. He didn't draw blood on that dog. That dog was physically okay. But the dog's handler was very upset. And I was very upset. I believe I didn't get written up. Or Kelso didn't get written up. Because of my age. I believe that some members of the agility community were protecting me from my dog being written up or disciplined. I think often we believe that protecting an individual is what support looks like. 
And in reality, while I am grateful for many reasons that Kelso didn't get rid up, written up that day, I don't think it was the right choice for the community to make. I hold both of those truths at the same time. He probably should have, we both probably should have been disciplined. And I'm glad that we weren't. I'm glad that we weren't because of my fragile mental health as a teenager. I'm glad that we weren't because agility was pretty much the thing that kept me alive growing up. But now when I look at our community protecting certain individuals, and it might be because of their age, or it might be because they're new to the sport, or it might be for a multitude of other reasons, I can't help but think that that's not the kind of support that these folks are actually owed. I had some good training mentors who helped me a lot with Kelso. That's why he was really, really well-trained, even though he was never actually comfortable with other dogs. And the right kind of support still would have been to get me working with somebody skilled at behavior to help me to help him feel safer in that environment. This is not me placing blame on anybody. In fact, I really appreciate everybody who helped me with him or tried to help me with him as I was growing up. And I don't regret anything or want to take anything back or change anything because I do think my experience with that dog led me to be the professional that I am now. Now I want to be the professional that I needed with him. And what that might mean is that I tell somebody that the dog maybe shouldn't be trialing. But what it also might mean is to tell somebody how uncomfortable the dog is with other dogs and how we can embark on a journey to help improve that dog's comfort improve that dog's training, and then see if the agility environment is actually the right choice or not. So I do not lack compassion for anybody who's trying to compete in dog sports with a dog that's a bit of a problem. I actually want dog sports to be safer for everybody, including dogs that might have behavior problems, and I'm planning a future podcast on that specifically. But what I want to do today is dive into some of the good faith questions and issues that have come up since my family meeting episode aired. I put it to my Patreon members and my membership, as I often do, to tell me what the questions, what the grievances were that needed to be addressed. And I think I've got a good representative sample of a lot of the stuff, a lot of the discourse that's gone on in the last week. So I'm going to open with those. I'll close with speaking specifically to agility instructors, and then perhaps we can move forward from this topic for at least a little while. All right. My first comment from Patreon is from Aaron. Aaron writes, based on the vast outpouring of many reactions to it, it, this episode was very needed. (laughs) My question is tied to a comment I saw that really took me aback. It was implied that tug play, and in particular, thrashing type tug play was decompressing for the dog watching agility. I know my own feelings, but would love to hear your thoughts on the idea of tug being a decompression activity, particularly in the agility environment. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming up about tug, huh? I never said I was opposed to tug, just for the record. I play tug with my dogs. I love tug. I use tug as a reinforcer if my dogs enjoy it. 
What I said in the episode specifically was that maybe dogs that are thrashing a tug ringside are not in the best mental place that they could be, and they might be disturbing to some other dogs. So a couple of things on that. Number one, I do think that's a behavior that your dog will probably have to tolerate from other dogs if they're in an agility trial. And I also think that if your dog's engaging in that behavior, you might be courteous to kind of look around and see if you're bothering anybody with it. But circling back to my main point, which is always my main point, which is welfare, I don't actually think those dogs are in the best place if that's what they're doing. But I can't know that for sure. And so that remains kind of my opinion. Whether or not the dog decompresses is a question of outcomes. That isn't about, like, you can't ask the dog if they're decompressing any more than I can ask the dog if they're okay uh, when they're beating themselves with a toy. And so opinion remains, you know, what, what we're speaking to. Some dogs do appear cooler headed after a game of tug than before. And other dogs are less cool headed after a game of tug. Some dogs want to tug going into the ring and then don't want to tug when they're finished, indicating that the dog kind of wants to release some of their feelings and their arousal onto the toy. And then once they've kind of expended that stuff on the course, they no longer need to. Other dogs want to tug when they're done. They've got bitey feelings from the running, but they don't have bitey feelings heading in. So it's very individual. And I'm not going to say yes or no. Allowing a dog to thrash on a toy might relieve stress for them and it might put them in a better place for work. I can't say. It would be a situation of ask your particular dog and try to be mindful of those around you. Next comments from Suzanne. Suzanne's got a couple of clarifying questions and then a few other things for me to address. Suzanne writes, recently I've seen what looks like a lot of human trigger stacking going on and going over threshold. (laughs) And Suzanne's talking about the dog people of the internet uh, talking about this episode. My personal interpretation of the podcast was a call to action as a whole and for a cultural shift. I heard that if we excuse dogs who disengaged, would that change training practices and safety? And if other dogs have other dog sports have expectations of engaged in out of the ring behavior, why can't slash doesn't agility? And lastly, I heard that if your dog needs tug or aggressive toy play and or constant treats ringside to remain engaged or under threshold, maybe a reassessment or training plan should be considered. Suzanne says, maybe I heard the wrong message or maybe not, but there's definitely disagreement and possible misunderstanding. Yeah, Suzanne, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. I'm hoping to clear some of that up in this episode. You did hear me right, though. So I did mention that if we excuse dogs that disengage, that, that might have a, an effect on the training and the culture. I did say that if your dog cannot stay engaged without a constant stream of reinforcement, that that's something for you to consider. And I did mention that perhaps that's something you need to consider because of the dog's emotional state ringside. Overall, I did intend what you said. I intended to call the community to action. Suzanne has a few points as well for me to talk about whether this is kind of what I said or not. Number one, disengaging in work, so zooming, jump setter visiting, attempting to exit the ring, etc., is an indicator of regression. That is something that people are saying that I said that I certainly didn't say. I do think it's an indicator of the dog not being adequately prepared to be in the environment. Number 
two, disengaging and zooming like many novice slash open dogs do, shouldn't be disallowed because the dogs are learning. And that's a point that people were making on the internet, not, not one that I made in the podcast. And I disagree strongly. I don't want dogs learning that way. If you disagree with me strongly, I welcome you to your own opinion. I do not want my dogs to flounder that much. I want my dogs to be very sure of what their job is. And that's about my respect for them. And it's about my respect for the game. Lastly, Suzanne says tugging ringside is a problem for those around the tugger and they should give themselves space. I would say this is a maybe. No, I think I think tugging and agility is fine. I, I tug with my dogs, honestly, less and less as I go, but I have tugged with my dogs. I do always give myself space if I'm tugging with my dog. I don't tug right in a pit of dogs that are right on top of each other. That's a safety issue to me, but... Plenty of people do, and I would again just encourage everybody to be mindful of who is around them and what is going on. It would be my preference, certainly, that dogs were calm heading into the ring. Again, I recognize that is my opinion and my preference. I think that the culture is unlikely to take a total shift towards that, but it is what I would prefer. Depending on the dog, you might do more energizing things before you head into the ring. My dog, Rhea, For instance, I don't want her to kind of waste any energy that she has heading into the ring, but my dog Felix benefits from moving his body before we head in. Difference being, I have Felix move his body outside before we head in, and I head in when I believe he is ready. Next comments from Nancy. And Nancy's comment is a good one kind of tagging along to Suzanne's comment. Nancy writes, I think it would be helpful if you could differentiate between your dog shouldn't be trialing because the dog is uncomfortable, parentheses, stressy sniffing, visiting, and zooming, versus the dog's behavior is threatening, menacing, or aggressive. I also think it would be helpful to encourage handlers to recognize the disconnect and to change their plan from trying to continue to to excusing themselves. If the team is disconnected and can't quickly and meaningfully recover, then a cue is unlikely and better to put effort into the relationship. So... You have answered your question within your question, I think. This is why I said that I would like dogs to be excused if they leave work. Another suggestion that I think is good and probably better than my excusal suggestion is simply that if the dog leaves work, they receive a non-qualifying score. So just as if the dog misses their dog walk contact and then therefore gets a non-qualifying score, I'd like the dog to get an NQ if it leaves work for a certain amount of time. And I do think it has to be objective so that we're not placing these subjective uh, judgment calls on our judges. An example might be that a novice dog is allowed to disengage from work for, I don't know, five seconds without getting an NQ. But once you get up into masters, a disengagement of two seconds will earn you an NQ, etc. So again, I'm not the boss of everything. I'm not the queen. And so I'm not making these rules, but that would be my suggestion. And I think that's better actually than my excusal suggestion. So However, I would love it if we push the culture towards, if your dog is not working, do not beg them to get back to work. Instead, go ahead and cut your losses and end your run. This is something I suggest, it's something I teach, and it's something I would do. None of my dogs, honestly, since Kelso, the first dog that I was talking to you about, has ever disengaged from work in agility, but I was running Raya once, my Icelandic sheepdog, and... 
She was simply not giving me 100%. She didn't have 100% to show up to that run with. And so I really quickly just made a beeline for the end. I said, okay, we're not gonna complete this loop. We're just gonna run to the end, get to your reinforcement, and I'm gonna reevaluate. I would love it if that was more culturally normalized. Just cutting it early, not you know trying to squeeze everything out of the dog and the run that you possibly can. Instead, what's normalized is, oh, keep trying, keep pushing, you know, you'll get it, keep, you know, keep working through it. That's what's normalized. And I don't think that that's good for dogs. And I also think it normalizes dogs disengaging from work, which I do think leads to bigger problems. Stress sniffing, visiting, and zooming are not aggressive behaviors. They're not threatening or menacing. That is so true. And also, I don't want the judge to have to decide what's a threat and what isn't. I want the judge to have objective bullet points. I want the judge to get to make the call based on rules rather than if you think the dog is a problem, whistle them. I think that the do- a dog that approaches a person should be excused. I stand by that. If they approach another dog or a person, I think they should be excused. And again, this is about not placing the onus on the judge to decide if they're safe or not. A friend of mine is at an agility trial today and sent me a text that a dog was whistled off for charging the judge and barking. I think that's appropriate. I think probably people watching would think that's appropriate because the dog probably looked kind of menacing. But I think it's equally appropriate to whistle a dog off that runs up to the judge and jumps on them in a quote-unquote friendly way because I don't want the judge to have to make the call. So thank you, Nancy. That I think that your comment really led us to some helpful points. All right, next one comes from Abby who writes... Most of the conversations I've seen about the podcast have been about whether or not dogs should be NQ'd or excused for ceasing work and or approaching other humans in the ring. And on that topic, I agree with you. I'd love for the agility community to push organizations to make this change. What I'm left wondering about is if you considered similar structural changes to improve outside of the ring culture slash behavior. You explicitly say in the what is not helpful section that you don't think this issue should be left to organizations or clubs and instead advocate for having conversations with people whose dogs are not meeting the types of behaviors you wish to encourage. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on why you don't think advocating for organizations slash clubs to provide specific guidelines for outside the ring behavior is a worthwhile approach. So a couple of different questions in here, Abby. One being, if I think structural changes to improve outside the ring behavior would be helpful and why I maybe don't think that the clubs should be put on this. So here's my thoughts on whether or not the clubs or organizations should be doing better. I want the clubs to support judges who take disciplinary action, and I want them to support competitors who report behavior. That's what I'd like them to do a little bit better. But again, it has to be changed from a cultural level. It cannot be changed. It it won't change from the top down. As far as dictating outside the ring behavior, here's the problem. If you dictate outside the ring behavior, you have to dictate somebody to police that behavior. So One of the issues with the aggression is that judges are not to write up a dog unless the incident happens inside their ring. Or if the judge is outside the ring and sees it while they're outside the ring, they need to report it then too. That means that these issues are a lot of the times up to the competitors to report or police and that 
doesn't work super hot, (laughs) as we have found out. So I again believe that a cultural change is necessary, and some organizations do have stricter rules about what goes on ringside than others, and I don't think that a whole lot has changed or a whole lot is different. It's got to be kind of a cultural thing going on, I believe. I generally don't think more discipline, more rules is what helps. Difference being calling an NQ, we already have non-qualifying faults. Make leaving work a non-qualifying fault and you will watch the culture shift. All right, next I've got two different comments, one from Celine, one from Erin. I will read Celine's first. Celine says, I've seen some comments about how the standards of behavior you proposed are gatekeeping and harmful to inclusivity. Can you speak to that? Celine continues, while I think new dog sports handlers should be encouraged and mentored, I think the reality is every dog activity has the potential to exclude certain dogs. If we can all agree that not every dog is cut out to be a therapy dog or a service dog, why is it hard for us to agree on whether some dogs might not be appropriate to run at agility shows? And then to piggyback on Celine, Aaron writes, After some back and forth with someone regarding the episode's impact on novice handlers, what are your thoughts on the pushback that your ideas weren't novice friendly? Do you agree that holding the community to a higher standard overall means the sport will wither up and die? Or is that an overstatement? (laughs) And Erin admits to her uh, sarcasm font in that one. So is it gatekeeping or not novice friendly to expect dogs to stay working once they start working. I do not think so. Any more than I think that novice dogs are expected to hit the yellow just like master's dogs and they're expected to complete the weave poles just like master's dogs. Novice dogs are given a little bit more grace. They're allowed some more faults and that's why I think that perhaps they should be allowed to disengage from work a little bit longer than than your master's dogs if it's gonna be, you know, if it's not an immediate excusal as I initially said, if it's just an NQ, then there has to be criteria around the NQ. And so, fine. Give them a little bit more time. I don't think expecting the dog to be trained to engage with the handler and not disengage from the handler is too much to ask. I just think it's culturally not done and therefore it feels like too much to ask. When I started agility, you know, back when the dinosaurs were still roaming the earth, we've, there were no weave poles in novice and it was really thought that that was gatekeeping, that it was not novice friendly for there to be weave poles in novice. And you know, look how things have changed, right? Like there's weave poles, there's even turns. When I started, it, novice was a circle <laughs> and then they added a side change and oh my gosh, but, but what about the people who can't do a side change? This always happens. It isn't gatekeeping to want to elevate the sport. And it, it isn't not novice friendly to say that the dog has to meet certain standards as long as we are clear on those standards and these things are trained. If your dog got an NQ for leaving you and running around and having zoomies or sniffing, you would take it to your instructor with more seriousness and your instructor would probably have plans in their back pocket to help you. Those things aren't always easy to fix. And I know that because I often work on them with folks in private coaching, but I've got more tools in my belt for fixing them because it's my job to fix them. So no, I don't think it is gatekeeping. I don't think it's harmful to inclusivity, but everybody's welcome to their opinion on that. Celine had another point. She says, I also interpreted your suggestions on ringside behavior as a goal versus... If your dog cannot do these skills today without any food reinforcement, you should go home and hang your head in shame. Am I correct that this was your intent? 
So of course, Celine, I never mean for anybody to go home and hang their head in shame. It was a goal and I stated explicitly that it was a goal in the episode. So thank you for clarifying. The next one's from Marianne and Marianne had a, had a long comment that I think can be kind of summed up into one sentence, one kind of paraphrase. Is it that some dogs need more space or is it that some dogs are taking up too much space? So essentially Marianne's question got to, is it not okay for a dog to need a little bit more space or is it not okay for certain dogs to take up more than their allotted space? And so this is where I think that these expectations need to hold hands. I want your dog to be able to hang out ringside with pretty minimal management and be comfortable with that. And I also want your dog to not be so disruptive that a dog that's maybe working really, really hard to keep it together is finding that impossible. And I think the next question really brings this relationship between those two expectations home. So Julie, and again, I'm going to paraphrase Julie's question. Julie's got a German shepherd who has seen multiple behavior specialists and trainers and is on medication. Julie says that the dog is managed ringside using food and a lot of food and must be kept out of the environment because it is a gauntlet of barking and lunging and her dog can't tolerate that without that constant stream of food. She often asks for the next dog to be sure that she has a hold of her dog, but her dog has never approached another dog at a trial. And Julie left the podcast feeling disheartened. She left the podcast feeling sad, even though she feels like she's doing her best. And I wanna be so, so clear that I did not mean for anybody who's working their butt off to keep their dog under threshold in an agility environment to feel bad or to feel like they don't belong there. Planning a longer episode about, you know, dogs with behavior problems doing agility and kind of what that takes, because I think a lot of dogs with a lot of behavior problems can and do compete in agility well and without causing any issues. Julie sounds like she's doing a good job at doing her best and it is actually the environment, the other dogs that are out of control that makes her job even harder. I'd love for Julie's dog to feel better in that environment for sure. I'd love for Julie to not feel like she needs to ask for special accommodations, but I'd also love for Julie to not have to walk through a gauntlet to get to the gate. I recognize the culture is unlikely to shift to that level, but it is the conversation that we're having now. Next one comes from Hannah. Hannah writes, what about the handler or trainer's ability to read dog body language? I see lots of handlers and trainers who either do not recognize stress signs in their dogs or maybe just ignore them. What can we do as a community to be better about reading what our dogs are telling us? That goes for educating ourselves and about being more honest about what we are actually seeing. So Hannah, this is why I am trying to put out as much material as I can and trying to be an educator. I agree with you that people being able to see problems long before they are problems would really stop kind of any of these incidents from happening. The subtlety of a dog maybe not being able to respond to cues the way that they normally can respond to cues before you head in the ring is not something people are talking about largely. And so many dogs are really, really subtle in their body language when they're uncomfortable, especially because most of these dogs do want to play agility. And so they aren't showing overt signs of fear or aggression. They're showing subtle signs of stress. And those things are being vastly ignored. So for me, it's about 
being an educator and I have received some nasty grams in regards to selling programs on the back of this tragedy that has recently occurred. But surely selling programs is how I make my living. I was selling programs before the tragedy and I am selling them after. (laughs) None of my programs are directly related to what happened. They are simply helpful. They're simply a place I can point folks to if they don't fully understand what I mean or what I'm asking of them. If you are working on a behavior issue with your dog and the person you're working with isn't teaching you to see your dog's subtle signs of discomfort, then you might need a different person. Or they might not think that you want that information and so you might need to ask them. Again, elevating the community, talking more about subtle signs of stress is something I'd love to see more of. All right, finally, I'm gonna dig into some of the common misunderstandings or disagreements that were coming from the agility instruction world. And the first thing that I'd like to say is that I did not say in the podcast that I wanted agility trainers to know more about behavior or do any kind of behavior modification. I didn't say that at all. And in fact, I never want that to be a pressure that's kind of put on the instructor. I think that instructors do the best work when they refer their clients to behavior professionals. And knowing when to refer to a behavior professional, I gave a metric in the last episode, which is essentially that if the dog requires special accommodation from you in class, they might need a behavior professional. Now, that's not going to be true if your class setting is really outrageously tough. I had a patron member write in about feeling as though the intro classes for agility that were available to her were way too hard for her dog to deal with. She referred to them as kind of high high stakes training classes. She said there were 10 brand new dogs to a class with the instructors, highly aroused dogs into demo and then barking from crates and essentially described a nightmare for a dog that has any kind of sensory concerns (laughs) or behavioral concerns, or even just a dog that's new to the thought of engaging with a person in a new space. Ashley mentioned that she and her dog washed out and they went on to nose work because the dog was so overstimulated and would shut down in that environment. So there's a happy medium to be found, I think. I don't teach agility anymore. When I did, my entry-level classes did involve dogs in a space, sometimes off leash, together working. But I capped the number at six and I made sure that I had plenty of space for everyone. That did help me to see who maybe needed more help, more engagement, more training, maybe even behavior modification in order to progress in agility. But I ran my master's level classes, my handling classes, more like Fort Knox. And I don't think I did the dogs any favors by doing so. I did that because I did take a lot of dogs with behavior problems in class and I wanted to make sure everybody felt safe and didn't have to work on behavior modification in class. But looking back, I had the skills to do so and I think I should have organized it a little bit differently. So knowing what the group needs and providing what the group needs is up to you as an instructor. And I think most instructors are trying really, really hard. So lean on each other ask each other questions, get in some instructor groups and talk about curriculum, talk about how you're designing it 
and how you can best prepare your students, not just for the sport, but also for the trial environment. Because unfortunately, it is kind of on you to provide those things, even though I wish it weren't you know, entirely on you. I do wish that a little bit more responsibility was taken by everybody involved. If you've got novice, young, new handlers, they probably have no idea. A supportive environment is not overwhelming, but it is preparatory. So I'm going to say that again. A supportive environment is not overwhelming, but is preparatory. So it prepares the dogs for the environment in which they must rehearse these skills without overwhelming them. And I know it's a tall order, but I also have faith in you, the agility instructor community at large. And my last point to you is this. I know that you don't actually have control over whether your students listen to you or not. Whether they listen to you might be on them, but whether you told them the information is on you. So if you're choosing not to tell a student that their dog's behavior is problematic because you don't think they will listen, you are part of the problem. If you tell them and you have that conversation and they choose to do whatever they want anyway, then you are no longer liable. So family, I'm going to wrap this up. I've got a few more episodes planned that are not specifically pertaining to this family meeting, but they are about agility and arousal and aggression and you know what, what all of us can maybe do better. I am looking for a cultural shift and I'm recognizing that it may not occur. In any case, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.